Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. All right, listeners. Well, uh, viewers, I should say, with uh, we're, we're kind of digging into the whole video element of Fortress on a Hill, which I think appropriate given just the handsomeness of my co-host mainly. And like, you'll suffer me, but it'll be worth it in the long run. And our guests are better than us traditionally. You know, do we bring on a lot of baby boomers? Sure. Sure we do. But, you know, but they're the silver fox variety, whether male or female. So anyway, you know, uh, we started this episode zero, I guess, sub-series or, you know, temporary series, whatever you want to call it, where we're going to start with the three of us. Uh, we did me first. Uh, I guess that was about a week ago. We released that and we're going to do all three of us. And then we're going to kind of bring on some of the folks we know, you know, probably a lot of our regulars, folks that have been friends of the show for a while, active in the anti-war movement and the veteran movement, uh, maybe even just some of our favorite scholars and voices and do really what is, you know, episode zero, what does that mean? Well, like start point, you know, start point, backstory. Um, maybe we should have done it right in the middle, right in the beginning, but, you know, you got to build some kind of audience and credibility. And now let's like take a, a flashback, like, like a good film or like a really cheesy bad film, but just like a film, take a step back and say, okay, what's the context? What's the backstory of this person? Uh, I'm obsessed with that as a historian, a geek, and just in general, like a cinematic kind of minded person. And I think a lot of folks are actually deep down. And so, you know, I do a lot of talking on the show sometimes and in life and when it's inappropriate. So let's just be clear about that. But, you know, Henry's, I think in a lot of ways, viewers would say, you know, he t he'll tell his story. He'll he'll make his point. But he's less likely to be indulgent. I mean, let, you know, just I think personality wise, less likely to be like, let me just tell you about how I experienced this for the next 12 minutes. You know, um, there are other people on the show, maybe hosts that not so much. Right. But I think that this is in a particularly interesting episode because I don't know everything about Henry's story. So this is not canned. Right. And, and I doubt Kagan does. Right. This kind of isn't a canned interview. So we're going to we're going to dig back to, to his past and then we're going to do the same thing with Kagan. And then we're going to do the same thing with some of our favorites and see how long this goes on. And that past goes pretty far back. Uh, and I think in general, whether it's Henry Kagan, myself, and then certainly most of the people we sort of roll with, at least the ones we started rolling with that are our regulars, um, I said this in a in an email and a social media post about episode zero that I did. Uh, we are clearly not special in a way of being better than others, whether it's us or just other people in the broad kind of veteran anti-war movement. But one thing is sure, every one of the people who kind of fits that vague description 
has been through two fairly profound pivots in, in life. And, and they're, no, they're no small thing, right? So the first one is um, voluntarily, post-Vietnam, the draft is gone, right? Voluntarily, to some extent, large extent, I would like to sign up for an institution in which it is part of the deal, basically, that I may and may very likely kill or be killed many thousand miles from home. Okay, that's that's a strange thing, right? I mean, we know, we know about one percent of folks serve on active duties. Just I mean, mathematically, it's strange. I think conceptually, uh, it's strange. And then the second one is, at some point, right? Not saying there's necessarily heroics in this, or or even a moral at the end of the story. But at some point, the people who fit this vague description, like Henry, we're going to talk about today, made another profoundly pivotal and and rare to some extent decision. Oh yeah, all of that. All of that that I signed up for that became my identity, I'm not, no, no, thank you. Not only no thank you, but no thank you. And I have to say some shit about it to others. And I'm sick enough in the head to think that people should care what I think, right? Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on there. And I think that um, the backstory of that is important. So with that long intro, we're, I'm going to kind of jump right here into episode zero, right? Uh, Chris Henry Henriksen. And uh, it's always funny because when we, book guests and stuff a lot of times they'll say to me oh uh chris did this or make sure you say something like this to chris i'm like chris who's chris and then i'm like oh right right there they don't get the nickname so all right henry uh all that being said i want to go back i mean i want to go like really back so i want to know about and the listeners i think are going to be interested to know you know where you're born and primarily raised and what kind of kid are you and I wanted to kind of almost stop at the point where you're seriously like of age and thinking like, I'm going to go into the military. So, I mean, so this, this question really covers, and I'm not saying you weren't thinking about the military as a kid. I think you were watching the same movies as me. Right. But what were you like, what was your experience like before it was a tangible thing? Like I'm probably going into the military and soon. I want to say it was like, maybe 12 or 13 when I really latched on to that. I want to join the military vibe. Um, part of it was my family, you know, legacy, having a whole bunch of people in, in uniform. And uh, I didn't, I didn't know how varied the experience was as a kid. Um, you know, you kind of just stack those in the same columns. When people tell you about, I served in the Navy or I served in the Marine Corps, if you don't, have a concept of it and then you fill in what's left from the movies you know you you bring in those those characters you know some of which are, are very well written but are very absurd to exist in real life in great numbers um the the biggest one that i'm thinking of right now was uh, vincent anna from from heat um and it was kind of his his backstory of that he had been in the Marine Corps and now he, then he went and got a master's degree and now he's this LAPD homicide detective lieutenant. I mean, he's in charge of his own, his own section. Um, that all the, the different, the different roles that I saw from movies, TV shows, and the few stories that I did hear from my family or read about elsewhere. Um, it, it gave me that composite of, I want to be, I wanted to be a, a cop of some kind. 
Um, but I was going to be in the military first. Why? Because all these people that I saw had been in the military first. And, and, and there's a lot of other connections between the military and, and police work. You know, it's, it's in some ways a very natural transition for people in the service because of the, you know, the regimented nature of it, following, following uh, rules and orders, filling out the required paperwork for whatever it happens to be. Um, but separate from that is I had as a kid, and this is as me as a young kid, as far back as I'd say I was when I was five, I had this concept of wanting to help people. And I was very much attracted to the, the hero portion of, of helping people. But more than that, I was concerned about a authentic version of helping people. You know, that the I, I did not want to be the cop arresting uh, homeless people for, for crimes that they can't control. Um, you know, I wanted to be able to, to go up head to head with the, the bad guys, you know, the, the real, the real hardened criminals. And it's not that police don't deal with them, but we don't deal with them in the way that films portray those things. But, but anyway, so I, um, but I really latched onto this idea of, of wanting to help people. And that was my first, layout of what that was going to look like, you know, going in the military, going to college, and then joining law enforcement somewhere. Um, and it, it very much felt like a given. It felt like that, yeah, yeah, later on, I could be in the FBI. Later on, I could work for the NSA. It, 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 um, it was much more, I think, about the myth than the reality. Um, yeah. So... It's interesting that sort of a sense of like an inevitability or a fadedness to to what you're gonna be isn't. I find it interesting that sometimes at a very young age we write a like a narrative for ourselves, almost like we write a plan or a script, and then and then at some point you wonder if am I playing out a script or do I still believe in the script, you know? And and then you wonder when it starts. And I think everyone maybe goes through that to a certain extent. But to just back up a little bit. Um, if you're comfortable with it, tell like tell folks about just kind of, you know, where, when we're talking and the, maybe just the kind of kid and teenager you were outside of military aspirations. Like, what were you like? Right. Were you like, where, where, where were you? What, what year was it? Like, I know how old you are. Not everybody might like, what was that? What was life like? And what, how did you respond to the stimuli of the universe? Right. Like we all do. Um, I was a pretty quiet kid. I, um, I suffered from uh, a lot of anxiety and just general, uh, uh, I wouldn't say simply just fear of the unknown, but it was about people, you know, it wasn't about the rest of the world, but it was, um, but I, I was a pretty quiet kid. I stayed to myself. I, um, um, you know, I had friends at school and played and stuff, but generally, you know, when I came home, I was usually a pretty solitary person um the uh my my parents got divorced when i was two and between the age of two and 12 i lived in i think five or six different places and it was that going back and forth along with disrupting some of my better relationships with grandparents that it it just it made me fearful you know, I, 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 I don't mean I, I was afraid of my own shadow, but I was, I was very passive with people. You know, I let people's personalities and ideas fill the room before mine. 
and it would take someone quite a while to break that down. And I was close to a few people. Um, I can mention my, my grandparents of, 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 uh, different kinds. I've, I always felt really blessed that way that I had, you know, uh, I had six grandparents when I was born, even today, my three grandmothers are, are all still, still alive. And so their, their presence in my life was, was comforting and helpful. But yeah, I, I was, I was kind of a, a fearful kid. And, and for that, for that reason, you know, there were a lot of things that I just avoided out of not wanting to take the chance. And that meant sometimes not reading books that looked interesting or not going to play games with people that, you know, seemed intimidating. Um, and I, and I thought that one of my it, connecting this back to being in the military is that I thought being in the military would kind of shake me out of that a little bit that they're, you know, the, 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 the toughness quotient of, of basic and of the, the regiment of being in the service. Um, <laughs> and uh, it certainly made me tougher, but it didn't change that part of me. Um, you know, I was looking to change something fundamental about myself that was always going to be a part of me, no different than my time in the service is an indelible mark on, on who I am. Um and, um, but yeah, I was, I was, I was pretty quiet. I liked my TV shows. I liked reading to a certain extent. Um, I really love comic books, but comic books didn't, um, come around much and being in a small town, it wasn't something that they stocked on shelves. So I didn't really look for it too much. Um, am I, am I answering your question, Danny? Yeah, absolutely. So I got two more follow-ons to that, of course. Um, details, details. Yeah, so it's interesting what you just said. I was, I was going to ask if maybe you know, as a um, as a function of, of of some of that personality and experience, driving personality. But it's, of course, it's always chicken egg, nature nurture. But you know, that experience as you describe it. Um, yeah, I was going to ask if you felt like maybe you were looking for a certain confidence or social and professional identity building in the military. Um, sounds like you were. Did it make the prospect of traveling and kind of moving about and like? you know, leaving your high school friend group, like some people are scared to do. Did it make all that seem less daunting that you had kind of been a little bit moving a lot throughout your life and like a little less settled? It, it did. It did. That part of it was, was much, much easier for me. Um, you know, moving, moving from place to place. And, and I think the average that I did is that, uh, while I was in, I moved on average every seven months. And that was between three, different deployments two two combat deployments and then one for for noble eagle um but yeah i, I think that was definitely a, a lead-in for me a, a chance to a, a hopefulness that i could you know kind of snatch out of myself those those parts that i considered to be weak to a certain extent um but also kind you know that the there's some that the the military, it, I don't think it breeds it out of you. I think the environment pushes it to the edges. That kindness is something that part of it, we don't have time. You know, there's there's very, there, we think about there's not enough hours in the day. And in the military, you really learn that. Even if you put in a solid day's work, there might be six more coming. But you understood it. And then that part of it was easier to me. Um, you know, I knew what I was going to do. And as far as being a soldier, I kept my mouth shut and I did my job. And no, nobody bugged me. And, and that's a, a, a different subject about not being bugged um, because my NCOs uh, let me skip out on a uh, record PT test at one point because they didn't realize that I wasn't 
in one of the two groups that was supposed to be doing it. We were doing shift work. You were either in group A and group B, and my name wasn't in either, and I wasn't going to challenge that. And um, it ended up that I missed it, which meant that a promotion that came around, you know, 18 months later took longer because they wanted to put me in for a waiver for specialist. And I didn't have uh, I didn't have a recent enough record PT test. Um, but that's kind of the, you know, in my nature, you know, I don't want to I don't want to upset the I never think about it this way, but I'm trying not to upset the balance around me that I don't contribute to making the balance worse for myself and especially worse for anybody else. I'll take care of anybody else before I take care of myself. Um, I'm good. I would definitely be that asshole on the plane who puts his kid's mask on first and then puts his own on because that's just the kind of person I am. That's uh, so I have some, something on that as well that interests me so i before i turn it over to kagan though i want to i want to pause in high school then i have something to follow on about the actual joining of the army which you can maybe briefly cover and then kagan's going to take over for a bit but okay where and when were you uh the, your junior year in high school like wh- what year was that and where were you going wh- wh- where did you live uh, i lived in uh, my hometown town of the dallas um that's uh, about an hour uh east of where i live now in uh in the portland area um i was uh the the biggest the the single biggest influence at that time was that i was uh i was a police explorer so my life was you know i i could put in as many hours doing it as as i wanted to um and i i did i did that an, an awful lot um but i i did that and then i took a break during that summer the summer of 01 before 9-11, and I spent 12 weeks helping my grandfather uh, remodel his house. And that's, uh, he's, he's since passed, so that's a really uh, special memory for me doing, doing that. And then, um, and then on the 13th of September, 2001, um, I was at MEPS, and I was sitting there with the, you know, they have these little staging areas in front of giant TVs to kind of keep pacify people as they're waiting to do tests to join the military and back in the days when a big screen tv was just massive in size you know you could never mount it mount it on the wall but here's these group of kids you know anywhere from as young as you know 17 through you know their early 30s um absorbing all of this pain and trauma and trying to find somewhere to channel it trying to you know to to deal with it and we, the three of us, have heard no end of people discussing how it was somewhere a part of their calculus of joining the military, whether small or large. If you joined after 9-11, it was a portion of your of your decision. Um, uh, sorry, anything more specific about my junior yeah, year? No, no. So, uh, and so you, you were a delayed entry then? Yeah. Right, right, which... Um, can you, maybe maybe just explain really briefly what that what the delay, delayed entry program is uh, in terms of enlisting for folks who might not know. Um, delayed enlistment allows you to um, actually sign up for the military earlier than both earlier than age age, age eighteen, but it's when you you they know you're going to graduate from high school or 
possibly college if, if that comes around and you've just done everything much further ahead of time. And so I had been in process there when I was 17, getting after getting the permission of my of my parents, because your parents have to sign to be able to do that. And um, but that had me working on, you know, getting in pretty early in my life. And I had done a lot of work talking to the recruiters and research and stuff before 9-11 because I, that process did begin then. I was, like you were, Danny, I wanted to join the military pre, pre-9-11. Um, but that ended up, you know, it, it certainly still had a great impact. But when 9-11 happened, it did, it did really shift a lot of those ideas and... Uh, and feelings. Um, but yeah, delayed enlistment, it also, uh, the, the thing that I really liked, especially nowadays that I'm out of the army is that your delayed enlistment time prior to actually signing on the dotted line and raising your right hand and, and, uh, joining, it takes time from your individual ready reserve because anybody who enlists, it's a minimum of an eight year enlistment. Now that may be two years active duty and six years individual ready reserve or six and mine was, mine was six and two, but I, I got an additional nine months off my individual ready reserve time, um, that other guys did not. And I was counting those days after I got out, I was like, well, there it goes. Uh, the military cannot Recall me back uh, at at this particular point. I mean, there's a much much further war war themed way to, way to do it, but generally speaking, they weren't going to do that, and that was really important to me because that's at the time there were so many specialties that were undermanned, and they were offering not ridiculous but modest bonuses to get people either to come back in, um, but MPs were were certainly a big uh, a big part of that. So, and, uh, and Kate's going to ask you about uh, MP work. Okay, so I'm constantly going back and forth. But so your junior year, which is the last one that you're not in the process, basically, of getting into the military is uh, 2000 to 2001, right? Yep. So, okay, let's pause in that general moment. And to the extent that you can remember, you know, that year, the year before you're kind of soldierly, right, or at least officially so, Um you know, what are your favorite movies, bands, and, you know, TV shows, and why did they resonate with you? I mean, even in a brief sense. Um, I, I had been trying to absorb um, as much war films as I could stand. Um, and I say that because it just, it, 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 seeing that kind of destruction to people, it, it, it even in a, in a cinematic context, was really difficult for me to, to swallow. But I watched Saving Private Ryan. I watch Band of Brothers. Uh, Band of Brothers, I think, is is one of the more accurate depictions of what combat is really like about the variance between we're going to die right now and we're stuck in a really cold foxhole and it's 40 below out. But that that wax and wane between the, you know, the, the sheer terror and the immense immense boredom. Um, uh, other stuff like that, you know, CSI, I want to say early CSI was a was a big thing there. And, and that. Um, you know, that really pushed me into the into the mentally believing that the scientific realm of criminal justice was more accurate, which it isn't. It all has to be checked by science. And a lot of the stuff that we see on there nowadays is isn't accurate or at least is misleading in how it actually works. Um, but I also, you know, I love sitcoms. I watch Friends. I um, watch I, I was never really a Seinfeld fan. Um but yeah, lots of lots of sitcoms and stuff around that time, um, and uh, police movies. 
uh, movies, uh, The Siege, one that we we that we reviewed recently with with Tom Secker, was very very powerful to me because, um, you know, I, I really related to uh, Hubbard, you know, the, the uh, Denzel Washington's character, um, that his his leadership, his calm when everyone around him was not calm, and I'm sure that that you know in in real life we know that that's exceptionally not easy to be able to maintain something like that. But, um, but I, uh, yeah, I think, I think that was about it. Sitcoms, war movies and, and, and cop stuff to a, to a certain extent. So. So I'm going to generally leave it to to Kagan to kind of talk about the intro into the military and the MP experience, but I just wanted to make a statement that, you know, not to en- encapsulate you in, in in my own sentences, but just, you know, what I know of you um, in our personal relationship and, and also just hearing you kind of talk about it on the show and a little bit of a different inflection, you know, because we haven't really talked these specific questions. Sure. I mean, I've noticed in my own experience, like, that I think it would surprise a lot of folks who aren't, like, uh, well acquainted with military life that, you know, the archetypal enlistee, uh, even in the combat units, right? Even like the scouts and I mean, MPs did a whole lot of fighting, you know, I mean, it turned out MPs were like a hardcore combat branch, even if that wasn't necessarily always the, the view, but yeah. even in those elements, I mean, I've always found that the archetypal enlistee in the American all volunteer force is, is, a, is often less frat boy meathead and more introverted, small town fantasy kind of tech geek, yeah. socially searching. I, I mean, in other words, what you're describing might surprise people to know that that's not atypical. I'm sure you found that there were like others that were pretty similar, right? Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot there. There are frat boys, there are meatheads, and there are even sociopaths, right? Mm-hmm. Probably in larger numbers than there are in the society at large. But that's not the rule at all. It may it may even not even be the standard. So I think that's interesting. But I've taken enough time, Kagan. Take it from here for a minute or several for many. <laughs> I think that's also really um, indicative of our generation, I think, as like, millennials you know like older millennials like we grew up like pre-internet but also like the internet was still very much a part of our lives so like of our of our growing up so we still had that mentality and that like understanding and yeah i love that i love what you said about depth too because i also i was in depth for like seven months and so i was really uh blown away when i found out like oh shit my thing ended like when i signed those initial papers not when i went to boot camp seven months later yeah 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 so that was like oh shoot like oh i'm done faster than i thought i am cool such a great but um yeah it was really nice it was like oh shit yeah um so like so you you have the fun boot camp camp experience um was there anything from boot camp or ait that really stood out to you as like particularly memorable or like a moment where you realize like, Oh shit, I'm, I'm like in the military now. Um, basic training, especially at the beginning seemed to be a place where they didn't want people to breathe. You know, they didn't want them to be able to stop and, and pause. It was about pushing forward and, and seeing how well, and often how much you could push forward in in a variety of things um but basic for me was was another one of those situations where my personality um you know i wanted i wanted to maintain a low profile you know i i I wanted to um i certainly wanted to do well and i wanted to learn everything I, i could um 
but it was, you know, the environment is, it's, it's just brutal, you know, that the, and not so much the, the physicality of it wasn't ever terribly hard for me aside from being moved from the C, the C group to the B group and, and running, they, um, in basic training, they, they break all the runners into tiers, you know, your C group is a, a little bit more slow and, mm. Uh, the A group is everybody that can just go like freaking horses, and uh, and then everybody else that doesn't fit into either ends up in B. Um, but it was you know it was you you got pulled along you know and and that was something that that happened in basic and didn't happen in a lot of the rest of the army was that trying to incorporate the whole group and acknowledge the whole group. Um, but it, it really depends on, on the people, you know, that the um, everybody seemed to react to basic in, in different ways. You know, there were the more meathead types. Uh, my, my battle buddy, my, my uh, bunk mate there was definitely one of one of those types. Um, he had come from a long military background and he wanted, you know, he, he wanted to be something. You know, he knew that the army was his his uh, I don't feel weird saying destiny, but I'm, I think that's probably the closest thing there. Um, moments that really stuck out. Um, I'm a little claustrophobic. So wearing my gas mask for the gas chamber was exceptionally hard. And, and it, 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 it squeezes to your face. That was the thing for me. It was just, it was like you would breathe in and it just pulls it into your skin and, you know, I, I already had a, not a terrible, but a reasonable level problem with, with claustrophobia. And so that was, you know, I was holding the mask out a half an inch right at the door to the gas chamber. And then we'd go in, I'd sealed it. I'd, I'd talk myself through having it sealed and then, and then get out. But that was, uh, um, that was, that was a hard one. And, and also because it was, you know, that the, they're trying to get people through. So there's lots of screaming. The military is full of random people yelling, even when you don't think the thing is is terribly important. It just ends up getting yelled at you, and somehow that's supposed to help you accomplish stuff. Um, once the MP part of basic training began, which I did, uh, it was a one station unit training. I didn't I didn't leave or go anywhere else. I was in my company of new MPs at Fort Leonard Wood for the entirety of, of that time. And, and part of it was great, which meant that you could make friends that you actually got to hang out with a little bit longer. Um, and you also got to kind of absorb the culture a, a little bit more. You know, you saw, you know, drill sergeants weren't supposed to cuss. It wasn't that they didn't cuss, it's that they weren't supposed to. But, you know, you'd see lots of innovative ways for them to, curse at you and, and yell at you without using profanity um, and, you know, scuttlebutt about it was the first sergeant going to ever let us get discmans and or have a little bit of, of space, you know, go on pass and have a little bit of fun. And, um, but it was, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I, uh, yeah, it was, it was just crunch time for me the whole time. You know, my, my brain was always working and thankfully, sometimes that physical exhaustion can soak up some of the anguish of mental mental exhaustion because you just got to sleep you're just that tired and you get that break and okay 2100 has coming come i go to bed i even went to bed early a lot you know the other guys were still polishing boots and stuff and i had already done all that and i was just tired i went to sleep um you know the the miracle of of 
getting the occasional six o'clock wake up as opposed to four thirty. You know, it felt miraculous to get that little bit of a little bit of time. Um, um, yeah, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, Kay. I, I, I trying to think of more more specific parts of it. Um, what did you like about when you were you know actually learning your job and actually like being like, okay, here's what I'm going to do beyond the like soldier stuff. Sure, sure. I always feel like the army focuses so much more on being a soldier and like under, like at least, I mean, cause I was stationed at an army base. So like, I just got to see it yeah, all yeah. day, every day. <laughs> um, the train up to become an MP was fun. You know, they have, uh, I can't remember the name of the village. Um, it might be Potemkin village, but I, I'm maybe messing that up. But anyways, it was a little faux city that we actually went on patrol in, you know, we got, you know, old school Chevy Lumina, uh, cop cars that had been changed just a little bit. And in this, it wasn't a very big area. Um, but we actually had to get in our cars and call on the radio and call in and we got a call and would go to these places. And, um, and sometimes, you know, a, a lot of them were pretty canned, you know, they weren't, I, I didn't feel like I learned a ton in any individual moments, but there were some where they did, better they they really you know they let they let uh the whoever was playing the town drunk or the the place drunk at the time um you know really yell at you and you have to find a way to remain calm and it's it's basic you know they don't actually touch you but the but the being able to deal with that anguish and still stay calm is is a huge part of it um i very much like the investigative part of of being an mp um, finding out what happened, talking to people about what happened. Um, and that was something that I, of course, got to do a lot more when I uh, worked on the at the Fort Lewis drug team. Um, but no, I, I really did cling to some of those MP tasks, those other, other things, and wanting to learn how to do my job. You know, I, at the time, I was still mentally saying these are the these are some of the first building blocks. You know, I was an explorer and then I went to do the MP thing. And then, you know, I thought that I was creating, uh, you know, layering knowledge on myself. And, and I was, it just wasn't nearly as useful as I, uh, as I believed it would be. What, um, like when, so when you actually became an MP, like once you finished schooling and everything, how much time was there between that and your first deployment? Um, uh, the first one was was uh, going to DC at the to check IDs at the Pentagon. I got to Fort Lewis on the third of January, and we landed in DC on February twenty second. Um, so, like in that time, that was all just straight up deployment prep. Um, you know, there was no I didn't wasn't working patrol or doing anything else. MP related at, at Fort Lewis, but it was a very, very quick turnaround. I was, I was three days into Fort Lewis when the, the operations, uh, NCOIC, the non-commissioned officer in charge came and told me, Hey, this is what's happening. You're, you're, you're leaving in just a little bit. And, um, you know, I didn't mind. I had just gotten there. So in, in that part of it, I didn't, I didn't care. I always hate packing up my crap. But that's that's a <laughs> that's a different problem. But it was it was very quick. We we got to DC um, there towards the end of February, and then it was the next month um, that Operation Iraqi Freedom was was launched. And so our time both before we left Fort Lewis and when we got to 
DC was hearing about our sister companies getting ready to go. And our, our essentially our entire battalion minus my company was going to Iraq. And um, I like that I had that extra time to process it a little bit, but I did feel a bit like I was missing the show. You know, I, I, I kind of, you know, and, and, um, and it was especially after being there at DC and seeing how, I, I don't know that we were useless because they needed the manpower, but it felt, it felt a bit like a waste. Um, but you know, it was, it was, but it was, it was a really neat experience to, to be there, to literally work in a guard shack next to the side of the Pentagon that had gotten hit, um, by the plane when, uh when 9-11 happened. Um, and then, but, but the other part of it was, and this was a little more impending doom was the, we knew we were going, you know, we, we, we weren't sure January through maybe March or April of next year, but we were going. And so I had eight or nine months to, to kind of mull that around a little bit. And I think that it, it made it easier. Part of it is that you don't know what you're going to be doing until you get to the deployment missions could literally change while you're on the plane between the United States and, and Kuwait that you could end up doing something entirely different. And for being an MP, that was, you know, the, it was, uh, I don't know if we want to call it the spice of life, but it was, it was, it was very widespread. You know, we did get security for convoys. We would go sit on IEDs if, if we happened to, uh, find one, um, of course, we, you know, being MPs, we, we worked with the local local police a, a whole lot, um, and sometimes the Iraqi army, but mostly it was it was police. We uh, got attached to a cab battalion for a while, and were when they were doing a huge huge operation, we were doing security for their uh, their S three their their operations officer for the battalion. Um, I remember that was one of the first times I ever got shot at was that night, and it was unnerving because the shots were coming from behind me over my head and um so i couldn't i couldn't actually look towards the realm of any targets i had to entirely rely on the other guys that were you know like we have our trucks spread out 360 so we're for providing security um but no it was it was incredibly incredibly varied when that uh that time came around um as far as like deployment tempo i was really really lucky so I came back from Iraq and I was home for a little over two years before I went back. Most guys in that period cannot say that other sister companies in my battalion at the time could not, could not say that. Um, so it's, uh, that was, that was really, really fortunate, um, that I did get that time. And, and, um, I had no, I had no intention up until the very end of that, of returning to a line MP company, I was going, I had, I had already submitted my packet to CID to become a CID agent. And so I thought that my time doing those kind of combat support roles was going to be over. And then, uh, things changed. The surge happened. They scooped up every available MP from any corner of Fort Lewis that they could. And I was, because I had, I had recently said that I don't, I had withdrawn my packet that for personal reasons, I didn't want to go down that road and I knew by doing so I was going back to Iraq there it, that's there, there was no no way around it um but I was fortunate to have that time okay I'm not I, I hope I I hope I answered your question in there I, I uh 
I get lost way too easy these days. Well, so Henry, uh, one comment and then backing up to like your view of the wars um, between the time you leave the Pentagon and, and then leave for Iraq. Uh, the first one is, again, I, I just I think it's interesting to remind folks who either may have never known or may have sort of forgotten, because like I've said so many times recently on interviews, the Iraq war is ancient history to most Americans now. Yeah. It's like off-putting in a way. I, in some ways, I'm like, I, it is good to forget because it was a horror show, but like Man, I hope we don't forget some of like the lessons, you know. But yeah, yeah. people don't remember that. I think, and I I knew enough. I know enough about MPs to be dangerous because I worked with a lot of them, and I, and I had I had a very different view of what MPs were before I went to Iraq and then after, right? And so I think folks don't realize some of the things you're describing here. Just to like dig into them for a second. I mean, the fact is, military police is one of the rare branches of the army where companies deploy individually mm-hmm. outside of battalions. Meaning, I think that you know you could be plucked to do any mission uh even off schedule with the rest of your battalion if the battalion even has a schedule uh, four or five companies in the same battalion could be doing totally different missions and not even on the same timeline but the other thing is like you said you might not know what you're doing until you get to iraq or until you're on your way and then it may change halfway through the plumb or it may change two times but the range of what mps do you know i mean look even an infantry unit can get a job like training an iraqi battalion on some big base and that's pretty safe but but that's more rare it's the. It seems to me that, from what I can understand, tell me if I'm wrong, that the the norm the normal way of doing business in the MPs during the uh, height of the Iraq War, especially, is you could be doing everything from fixed stationary kind of guard duty, although that became less common out of necessity, at a pretty safe site, or you could be running convoys every day more than the infantrymen, braving you know the snipers and the gunfire and mm-hmm. the IEDs, and even fighting side by side with. Uh, infantry and cav units and also the Iraqi security forces units because as people may not realize police what we call police in Iraq were soldiers targets every day right and just it was war just like yeah. in Afghanistan so I mean maybe just a just a, a, a if you have just any like additional comments on the unique to, to a certain extent a large extent the unique experience of being an MP as a job and of being an MP from like you know 2004 to 2012 at the height of the two wars till the surges ended well, it, you know, it, it it always changed very quickly. Um, I know you've you've mentioned that you lived in in I think three or four places each each deployment. Or I know Iraq was just, just several different places, and I lived at four three or four different camps on my first tour, and then three my my second. And so each of those moves went into you know the the mission would change even if we were because at one point we were convoying from a bigger camp down to our area in diwania which is the is kind of the ao that i was in on my first tour it's about three hours south of uh of baghdad um crap what was i talking about moving around a bunch oh, and, uh, moving around so but it, and then and then at one point you know we were we were living in the city in a defunct medical college um with the battalion that we were the cab battalion that we were attached to and it was kind of weird it was there was like 33 of us in a one giant room um and we we managed we managed to make it work but that kept changing over and over and over again um always convoys there's always always somebody that needs protecting and and we could easily drop in for that and and the thing the thing about importance in the in the military with missions and stuff is that you see when a higher priority one comes in 
that the lower thing almost can just get swept off the table. And then you start to ask yourself, was it really that important to begin with if it can so easily be dismissed by what just what just happened? Um, uh, I think about more stuff about about MPs. Um, but no, the, the, the sky is really the limit. You know, we had guys, um, uh, not, they weren't in my platoon, but on my second tour, we had a, a, a team that went to work with Navy SEALs. They were doing EPW, enemy prisoner, prisoner of war work, you know, doing searches and keeping, you know, keeping prisoners together before they could get picked up. Um, so, it, you know, it, it could really go in almost in almost any direction. But that means that the how is an MP supposed to have really um, a really good grasp of mission tasks if they're always changing, if they're always morphing, if there's always these these, you know, different exceptions and, you know, trying to accept when bad things would happen with the Iraqi police, you know, that equipment would go missing, that guys wouldn't show up for patrol. Um, and, and we weren't really trained very much on training people. We weren't trained as, as police trainers, although we, we did do a lot of that. Um, but it was usually we had to fall in on whatever mission they, that happened to, to come up right there. Um, and and then you know the and like you, what you mentioned, Danny, about the period about from 04 to 2012. Um, you know, there's so much that happens in there that really, really hammers the MP core. You have uh, the Abu Ghraib scandal, which was huge and involved uh, not people I knew personally, but in terms of leaders, um, a colonel I served under that uh, he was out of out of Fort Bragg. Um, ended up doing part of the investigation in, into that when it happened. But they were the guys at Abu Ghraib were National Guard guys, and they had no decent leadership, and they also weren't trained. And so, you know, they show up there, and, like, all these horrible things are happening. Well, uh, it's not an excuse for their inhumanity, but did you tr actually train them to not do this? Did you train them on how to actually deal with prisoners? And the other part of that is in terms of in terms of the the mindset of the MP Corps that we're supposed to care for our prisoners. They're supposed to they're they're our responsibility. And yet there were people within the MP Corps that were willing to look the other way on certain things. And that's something I'd actually like to research a lot more. But then you have, you know, the, the, we were already stretched super thin with the invasion up through 05. And like I mentioned about my two years is everybody else was on 12 and 12. They got 12 on a deployment or 15 potentially with when uh, they went to 15 month deployments. Um, and sometimes it was 18. You know, there were guys in OIF-1 in the, in the initial wave who were part of the wave in March of 03 and were still in country of June of 04 and, and longer. Um, mechanics, guys, uh, any any kind of um, cyber unit, any anything that involved computers and required more time for setting up, um, yeah, it was it was just it, it just made absolutely no sense. Um, double checking, Danny, am I still answering your question? Yeah, absolutely. So I have um, I have I have I think an interesting follow on that I hadn't written down, but but right before I get to that, you mentioned that you know it was March of '03 that we have the invasion, so. We just passed the weekend. That was the 18th. 
uh, the 18th anniversary, right? And I mean, if you would have told us back then, I don't know, maybe there were better soothsayers than, than we, but I mean, I know personally, if we were talking back then that we, there would be an 18th anniversary of that invasion with the war going on. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think I could have pictured it, but so you leave the Pentagon just in terms of factual and like sequence stuff, you leave the Pentagon about what month and year your duty. Uh, uh, that doing, was, that was July of 03 that I, July we, we were late, okay. So the Iraq War, that first summer uh, bump of, of Sunni insurgencies hitting, Odierno's, you know, locking up every military-age Sunni male and holding their families hostage. Like, yeah, sweet old Ray Odierno, right? That was happening when he was the fourth ID commander. One, one of our sister companies did uh, <clears throat> did protective details for Paul Bremer when they were first in country, the 571st they did. And so we got to see a dash of him just a little bit kind of behind the scenes but yeah very absolutely right there in the in the forefront so then you uh and then you leave what month do you get into iraq what month year uh february 04 okay so february 04 yeah so you know you're there um two and a half years you know before before i am right despite the fact that we go into the military around the same time uh in that period right um maybe okay so 18 years ago this weekend what was your general view of the invasion, you know, uh, efficacy, rightness, wrongness, and then in the brief interim, when it's really, really real, between July 03 and February 04, when it's like, I'm going, um, what was your view then, and was it any different at all? Um, I didn't know what to expect when it began, you know, and, and I want to say, you know, that was, that was definitely the experience of 90 to 95% of the people in the unit, we had uh, maybe five or six guys that had a had a combat patch, uh, usually from the Gulf War, but a few other places, Panama and such. Um, but we, we we didn't know. We were all just kind of of jaw dropped, uh, you know, just we're because we're, we're we're trying to absorb what we're seeing on the news because you know the the army doesn't keep you in the loop about about things you know it, it it even if you wanted to you know there's no site that you could go to and here's the latest info the army is teaching its soldiers about speaking arabic or something no that that doesn't happen um at all with any with any regularity um but the barracks we were living in was our our staging area where we parked our trucks was adjacent to Arlington National Cemetery and so every day when we went to shift you were you were greeted with it you know and and it's um if 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 you if listeners if you've never gone and seen a map of arlington and just how big it is and all the different things that it touches in terms of it because it's expanded a lot over the years but it was it was an incredibly sobering experience watching guys who had fallen in iraq coming to to get buried that was also at the same time that the space shuttle columbia exploded and so the astronauts that there were two or three of them that were interred at uh, at Arlington, and so it, it was it was it was very much in our face what the reality was. You know, is that we we didn't know what was happening in Iraq, but we knew the outcome for people that wore the uniform. We and we it, it became a, a more personal, a more visceral. Um, fear and 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 wanting to understand you know what we could do to protect ourselves and and you know it, combat is is unforgiving in that way people may die from an ied explosion people may die because the driver turned too sharp and rolled over the truck um both of those are very very plausible but we don't think of the accidents that are non-combat um 
in terms of you know is it is it less manly is it uh um is it should we just put the mistake on on the person whereas if the enemy does all the killing there can't be any blame on this side you know ostensibly so um when i got um and and then we went we went home we went back to fort lewis and i went to ncc for a month and I, I kid you not, the, the, the month that I spent in NTC was harder than any one month I spent in, our, in Iraq, minus being in combat, minus the actual firefights, long hours, shitty food. You were, you, it, and it was it's an entirely different kind of desert. You know, the, the kind of desert in Southern California is much more mountainous and, and uh, rugged, whereas the desert in, in Iraq is, you know, there's little hills but there's no mountains it's it's and some places are sand and some places are just rock um but no i i i I think i was in too much of a of a fear state to really be asking any harder questions about it you know we would meet up we had a, a thing in the chow hall where we our sergeant major told us you know two months before we're going hey this is this is what I know right now. This is our approximate date. This is approximately when we'll be coming home. This is what we're expecting to do, but that can change. Um, and we were all very much caught up in the in the human parts of it, you know, missing our family, having to, you know, all the preparation that goes into a deployment, all the things that soldiers have to do. You know, they they set up these little lots to park your cars in if you don't have, you know, family to, to hang on to your car while you're in deployment and that take all of that. Uh, takes time, um, but no, I, 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 I was, I was very much too in the moment in that time to really have harder questions. Um, once my first tour in Iraq was done, the only concrete determination that I had made was, we are not helping. What we do here does is not a net positive for these people or for us. It's just not, and so. I knew that regardless of the politics, if I had to do it again, which I did go back to Iraq again, that my focus was going to be much more on protecting my guys and not hurting anybody than it was going to be trying to go after anything. Um, and, and you can see that dynamic with, with different leaders. You know, I, I finished uh, reading a book called First Platoon recently, and it, it combines stuff about Clint Lawrence and his war criminal case with understanding uh, a term called identity dominance, uh, something I've actually wanted to ask you about, Danny. But it, it, anyways, they were trying to use um, biometric data to try to convince people to so Trump would give Clint Lawrence a, a, a pardon. But when you when you get into a little bit more nitty gritty about about him as a person, he only had five weeks left in his deployment, and he just came from a talk was what we call our little bases, tactical operations center, where you're all the radios and computers and all the technology that keeps convoys on the road is all, you know, concentrated. And, and the other LTs were making fun of him. And so, you know, between that and the fact that, that he was gay, there was definitely a, a, a tough man quotient that he was trying to go after. And that was one that I entirely rejected because it didn't, it didn't make it, it didn't make a difference. Big muscly guys bleed and get shot the same as anybody else. Same with uh, talking about women, you know, being being too weak. There are tons of pasty white guys that are about my size that are weaker than the women, but yet we end up focusing on whether or not they can. I mean, can, can the average person just 
randomly throw up a 230 pound guy with all his gear and haul him out of an armored vehicle before it explodes? I don't know. I, it, it, but it, but it's not certain. It's not it's not a infallible fact. Um, but no, I that was I think that was the one kind of uh, hold on one second. The one kind of dissent that I participated in when I was still in service was, I know this mission isn't worth it. I don't want anybody to get hurt. And I'm going to run as fast as I fucking can towards both those goals. And that was it. And once we got home, you know, things did definitely did change for me. But Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Will Arends, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen. Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds, Why I Am Anti-War Podcast, Scott Spaulding, Kenneth Cordasco, Korgoth, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash fortress on a hill or please check out our awesome store on spreadshirt.com for some great fortress merch the link is in the show notes and now let's get back to the podcast um but well, before I, you before, before you talk that if you don't mind i wanted to because you, you've hit on something interesting that I, I didn't write down until we started when we start talking about the unique nature of MPs, and I, I think it's super important. I mean, it, some might say that, you know, given a lot of the debates that are going on and stuff, that this is sort of like tricky or touchy ground, but we've never been really scared of that. But, no, no. You know, I mean, how many, you know, I guess what I, what I want to ask is about the female MP experience, um, the, the number or proportion of females that you sort of served with, um, and, and and like your view at the time versus your view after serving with them, because I'll just say even from a distance, I never really served with females except like some staff, like higher staff officers. And then sure. when I taught at West Point, um, just because they weren't allowed in those in, in those units at the time. But I will say that it was the military police experience watching and serving with military police that was transformational for like my previously obtuse and like maybe quietly, but definitely quietly chauvinistic viewpoint before, like when I was a cadet where it was kind of like, uh, you know, like don't take females too seriously, certainly don't date them. You know, it was like that whole horrible culture, but you know, you know, I had seen female MPs uh, wounded severely 
Um, my unit had come up on an MP unit with a double amputee female military police officer. And so, I mean, for me, it was just even from a distance as a voyeur of the military police corps, but maybe a little more than that. It was like, wow, that was transformative for me. And I can't help but wonder if it was the MP experience in Iraq specifically, maybe Afghanistan, that helped really move the needle on females in combat. Because when the casualties went high up for the non-combat, traditional combat units like infantry, it was uh, truck drivers like 88 Mike's. And it was MPs. Yeah. But the thing about the truck drivers is for the most part, they faced IEDs, maybe snipers, but they were in their vehicles. Yeah. The MPs were the real like combat support element that was in firefights, like what we think of as traditional combat. So anyway, that was just something that jumped at me about the MP experience. And maybe you could talk a little about what your view of you know females in the units were before, after, during. I knew. <clears throat> I, I, I met a new female soldiers who wanted to within the confines of that that section of the military at that time who wanted to get as close to combat as they could. And being an MP was one of those places. Um, you know, aside from that, you know, aside from the, you know, the little bit of, of a program that they're trying to do for special forces and other, other, uh, other jobs trying to get more females into, but females being a part of combat around me was a part of my entire enlistment. You know, I went from high school where, you know, girls can do everything that the guys can do for the most part um, in terms of, of rules and stuff. And so when I entered, entered the MP Corps, the makeup of my unit, it was it was certainly more diverse than what I had in my in my home small town. But I didn't bat, bat an eye that some of my comrades were females. I didn't it didn't bother me in the least. And and like I just mentioned, you know, that, that you in. in <sighs> It seems like that automatic assumption that people make that there's a there's they're less tough, they're less strong, they're left less emotionally able to handle it, and I I didn't experience that at all, um, you know that and, and especially because of the climate, you know, not only the unforgiving nature of uh, the army as an institution, period, but the unforgiving nature when you're a female in the army. Um, a, a, a good example of that, and it's you know it definitely was contrary in different places. When I went on my second tour, when we first got to Iraq, I had a female soldier in my team. We ended up going to Al-Anbar, which was uh, was being patrolled and, and uh, covered by the Marine Corps at that time. And the Marine Corps very strictly does not let females in, in anything close to combat. But they were they were concerned about that. But more than that, they were concerned that they were just kind of throwing fresh meat to a pack of wolves. You know, a boys will be boys kind of thing. And I really hated that. I really did. I hated the fact that they plucked my soldier from my team who I was, you know, it, it takes time to get used to new people. You have to learn about them. And I was one of those NCOs who wanted to know my guys. I wanted them, you know, I wanted to be that support in their lives that I didn't have at times when I was a, a younger soldier. Um, but no, they're tough as hell. Um, you know, they, 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 uh, certainly had their, uh, places where they were even more helpful because, uh, dealing in, in Muslim culture, you need uh, a female to search a female. And so that was something every once in a while, <clears throat> one of our, uh, our, sol our female soldiers would get plucked out from the platoon and go and do, you know, a couple of days of missions. And they were, that was what they were doing is they were helping search females so that they could, you could make that that cultural difference a little a little less uh stingy um 
but and and then now what i know now i i also, I, I didn't experience this myself but i saw the way that soldiers and and even leaders even somewhat higher leaders had this accepting predatory um line of of looking at women and i did i did not see them that way you know if somebody worked for me to me they're off limits that's really unfair to to do that and there's a whole bunch of other layers to that but that was base one for me um but i um I'm grateful that 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 the MP Corps made a place for those 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 people those soldiers that wanted to get closer to combat because they sure as hell were going to find it. Um, but I hope that even even in in my my anti-war stance that I am in now, I hope that the military becomes much more welcoming in that way because even if we disagree in 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 anti-war sense. We still want the military to be a place that doesn't dehumanize people just because of the nature of its existence, just because you're, you're in there. And I saw people being sexually, soldiers, female soldiers being sexually harassed. My, my ex-wife was harassed by an NCO of hers, and I had to restrain myself from going and dealing with him. He did outrank me, but I really didn't give a fuck about that. Um, but, but it was a reality. It was a very harsh reality. And then move to today where we understand that, you know, a lot of times is, is kind of like that dude, that, that that captain that was Oliver Stone's commander. And, he, you know, he watches platoon and he's like, none of this happened in my deployment. It's like if we can't, if the idea didn't happen in front of the person's brain, they can't accept that it's a reality. And that was very much in terms of, of female treatment. You know, I didn't see that. I didn't see that those kind of things when I was in. Well, that was because you didn't see them. That doesn't mean that they weren't there. I don't know a single, like, I was pretty fortunate to work with a lot of females. I think because I was in the intelligence community, there tends to be more females. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, but, like, I don't know a single uh, woman, you know, that I served with that wasn't harassed, assaulted, at the very least harass at the very least like made you know comments or people you know they go to sit down and there's some like the guy that they're sitting in the space with his hand is there like mary mm -hmm. talked to us about that and it's like like stupid shit like that that just gets swept under the rug so much that so many people they don't want to talk about it and it's like now we're in the space where women can serve in literally every role. There's no, there's no, and like, I'm so glad that that's the problem, but then people are feeling like, Oh, well, we're like, you know, we're going to do the same thing with racism. It's like, Oh, we're done. Like sex yeah, isn't yeah. conquered. The, the and the goal like, has been achieved. The thing, and, and very much like, yeah. um, um, you know, dealing with someone's mental health is that it has to be, we have to continually update and move to better. We have to always be trying to mm -hmm. go, towards doing something better that the u.s military so dehumanizes uh both women and people of color but especially women in terms of the the mst factor and in, into it um it, you know that some something that i i tried it i don't i don't say it as often as i should but that if we're trying to educate people to be more human, they have to accept themselves as human more often, and they have to accept the people in their little circle. If we want veterans to feel for Iraqis, we have to we have to first get them to accept the people that were closer to them. Um, 
because I think that that's the journey. You know, we, we value those people's lives that are next to us. And then we also end up connecting that to the people that we actually go serve operations near. And I don't think that, you know, you can't honor uh, a female soldier and go treat a female Iraqi like shit, you know, is, is that, you know, does the, how does the cognitive dissonance not just fucking crawl out your ears and wave at you like this? It's, it, it, it's, it's beyond me. But I think that that's a really important thing. And especially with understanding the nature of the military in terms of being able to change the civilian side, you know, knowing what Harry Truman's choice to reintegrate the military did, that it forced a little bit of change that eventually it, it wasn't the only thing that uh, brought about the civil rights movement, but there was a definite connection there. So, um, speaking of, uh, many females being tougher than uh, men, which can itself be like a sort of version of uh, stereotyping, which I'm about to do more of. That's fun. Uh, but uh, yes, yeah, so but I want, I want to make one comment and then ask one question and then Kagan's going to close it out from there because uh, uh, one of the much tougher females in my life who would have been stoic as hell in combat while I was breaking down uh, will kill me if I'm late for uh, school pickup again. But um, you know, the thing that you said that was interesting about, uh, women and the way they're valued or, or the lack thereof it became really apparent to me uh, when I was when I went back to teach at West Point when I found that for the most part okay there are always exceptions uh, my female cadets and my uh, and even my male cadets of color right so different a variety of uh, different backgrounds besides white male uh, tended to come in with a, a much more like open-minded and uh, broader view of things like a little bit I mean, less pigeonholed and that's not always the case but i mean mathematically the hundreds of kids that i taught it was definitely a trend and it's interesting because it's also the same goes for like homosexuals to a certain extent because um or just people who you know aren't cisgender right or any of that because you know with don't ask don't tell we pushed out so many uh you know gay and lesbian soldiers um a, a disproportionate number of whom were in things like linguists and you know cultural awareness kind of jobs and then of course we found out a few years later uh in iraq and afghanistan like man we really wish we had those and so um you know i mean there's a part of me that wonders when it when it, when it comes to the iraq war and stuff in general it's like who thought that sending mainly white boys from alabama and montana in infantry units right because like let's be real statistically that's the disproportionate that's who they are right they're not all bad guys but like is that really who we wanted to send to like recreate society. So that's the first thing. But the question I have, and you guys can talk that, but, and, and, um, and I'll listen to the answer, of course, I'm really interested is um, between the deployments, you have about two years. And I, and I guess I'm interested, and I think viewers will be interested to know the state, uh, the evolving state of your sort of emotional and physical health, um, the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, your personal life, romantic relationships, experience in that period, and then just anything that kind of falls into the broad category of like PTSD related symptoms. I guess what I'm asking is what was your life like, right? 360 um, on a fairly personal, but also somewhat professional level in those two years between the two deployments. Um, yeah. And with that, I'll let kind of kick and take the, uh, the, the follow ons to that. But um, I think people will be interested to know it's tough stuff, by the way. I mean, I, you know me, I'm going to push, right? <laughs> it's all good, man. It's all good. No, I, 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 I made that joke with the, with the episode description for yours and in the, in the same vein, I think that, if we're not searching for truth or, or greater truth, if we want to call it that, um, I don't know that there's a point in living. You know, I think that everybody should try to do better, you know, and especially when it comes to people. Um, so time after my, my, my first tour in Iraq, 
um, the first six months or so, we were essentially gearing up to go back. Um, which my company that that company did deploy to Afghanistan the following winter. Um, so if I had stayed in my land and P company, I would have been on a twelve and twelve split back and forth again. And so I was I was very grateful for that. You know, my uh, a good friend of mine uh, at the time, uh, Chris Giatina, um, he came over to the drug team with me. So we were the two new guys, but we were together, which made that a little bit easier. But I was uh, honest to God. I was too busy with trying to just get through my own life, um, trying to get used to working on the drug team. And then somewhere in the back of my mind that I didn't think about often, but was very pressing was the reality of going again. And, and you know, what are the odds that I, I don't get hurt, that I don't get, uh, you know, don't get PTSD. And at the, at the time, I, I didn't see that, uh, that part of it in, in myself as much. Um, I was also, I, my, I got married in the, in that two years and that my son, Sean was, was born. Um, and my, my ex and I had a lot of issues and that made, you know, and, and, um, it made life quite a bit harder than it needed to be. You know, I mentioned to her, she used to be a line MP two, and she got out because she, she had our, our son. And I was, I was trying to impress on her that, you know, I, I, I have an office job now, you know, I get most weekends off. I get to do something that I enjoy more in terms of the the actual doing of it. Um, please, you know, please help me appreciate this. And and I won't put that all on her. I had my own issues. I had my own stuff going on. But I I was I was too busy worrying about the next thing to think about the last thing. Um. And then um, you know, for me, it wasn't until I think 2011 where a whole bunch of personal and, and social things kind of fell out from under me. And I absolutely knew that I needed, needed someone to talk to someone to, you know, to do something. Um, and, uh, that was, that was the beginning of me of actually going, going and speaking to a, to a therapist and, and trying to figure that out. But I was, you know, I, I, I made a lot of mental excuses, you know, there are times where I would be really angry or are just really curt with people, just really forceful. And, you know, why did you do that? You know, it, it, I, um, and I didn't realize this, you know, that I was creating that environment around me a bit because I was projecting it onto my family that I was where I was living at the time. Um, but as far as the awareness of the, of the war, you know, that it, 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 know that it, it carried on as, as, poorly as it had when I was there the entire time. And I, I, I felt a little bit, I deserved a break from understanding more of the pieces, you know, trying to save my own psyche a little bit. But I also knew that if my career aspirations went in the direction I thought they were going to becoming a CID agent meant getting deployed quite a bit, even more than being an MP. And you can kind of see the results of, of two decades of that with reading the, uh, the Fort Hood report that CID is, is severely undermanned and under, underqualified for the stuff that they're doing. And like mentioning that even if we're going to have a military, if we're going to have a military, let it be one that's accepting and welcoming and protective of all of its soldiers, including females and, and people of color. Um, crap. What was I talking about? 
Um, but uh, what was your main like when you were in? Inter- so you interacted with the Iraqis a lot, and like you got to see a good amount of their life and what their existence was like over the time period of us. And so, like in the difference between the, the your initial foray into Iraq and then later, like what what was your impression of the life of the people and their general sentiment towards you as an American soldier? Um, generally, they were pretty kind to us, and I had I had no I had no reason to have any animosity towards any of them. Um, you know that they they generally were as as kind as they could be and and um you know iraqi culture you know that they they're very uh, stern sense of welcoming somebody into their home and so you know that that i remember our uh, one of our squads having dinner at the police chief's house and you know i i wasn't in sitting at the dinner but they brought me a plate out to to eat when i was standing in the i was up in the gun doing security um but yeah they 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 tried to be kind um the problem was is that in in iraqi culture it's difficult to criticize someone that they criticism is is kind of supposed to be more tepid and and more subtle and so the kind of criticism you get from a loud sergeant first class isn't isn't the kind that they really do there and it takes for that reason because of that sensitivity if you're trying to criticize something specific you know you meet with the police chief and your guys are doing this particular thing when they patrol in this area can you please get them to stop that that might have been a number of conversations to actually completely achieve that goal um because of that distance because of and and also because of our ignorance about it you know i didn't learn that from the army i learned that from dealing with the iraqis um but more than that i i saw them just as people these are people, you know, I, 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 the high level of poverty there was very new to me. Um, so I, did, I didn't really know what to make of that. But what, what I saw was people trying to go on with their lives in, in whatever way that they can. And but like I, I mentioned earlier is that, you know, I, I, um, I wanted all of our guys to come home and I, I wanted to hurt no one. I wanted to be involved in, in hurting and, um, trying to control, you know, anyone. And I, I, I really, really wanted that to be a, a, um, that to be a reality. And part of it is because I just, I, in general, I value people, you know, I, I haven't gone to church in a, a really long time, but I recently realized that so many of the things that I did learn in church as a young kid really stuck with me. Um, treat your neighbor as you treat yourself is, is a very big one. Um, you know, because you don't, um, you don't, know the full story you know that we we look at people and we think that we can understand them by whatever our experience is and we don't do enough time spend enough time listening which for me being a more passive person is a great thing because i end up spending a lot more time listening and so i'm i i think i have a better chance to understand that because i don't always push my opinion in but then there are other times where i miss out because i i step too far back so i i love that story that when we went to Vetsvar and the VA chaplain was asking you that question about like your deployment, like, well, I, I don't know if this was your first or second deployment, but that story that you told about the fact that you you were driving the Humvee 
and your uh i don't know if it was your superior next to you but they were telling yeah. you to just like you're supposed to keep going when there's people in the way and you're like you didn't want to kill like you didn't you had that mindset of like i don't want to hurt anybody and like did you did you get any follow like fallout from that was anybody like pissed off at you or did they try to get you for anything or were they just like whatever Nobody, no. nobody tried to get me for anything. My team leader did. He didn't smoke me, you know, do have to do push-ups or anything like that. But he, he was really upset and he did yell at me. Um, but it was, it was very short-lived. And looking back on it now, I think that his anger was more about the fear. That was at a point right. in Iraq when uh, car bombs were just prolific. It, you know, we could not. And it was really ter- uh, terrifying because we knew that, you know, I had been hit by an IED and it happened to not penetrate my truck. You know, I knew that, you know, for everybody who, uh, you know, might have gotten killed or maimed by an IED, there are however many others that w- didn't go off or if they did go off, they only caused a, a small amount of damage. But, as um, you know, earlier mentioning in terms of, you know, the damage of combat versus the damage of soldiers being stupid rolling over a truck or and and, and what you just referred to which is it i i i really like the story but it, it it it's a painful inflection point for me but i think that that is one of the the key points that i hang on to now uh thinking in an anti-war sense um and i don't i don't know that i've told that story if uh if it's all right i'll i'll uh, i can tell it again real quick so everybody can have a an idea yeah, yeah. of it and i haven't told too many story stories about my time in occasionally here and there but i i um um so like i mentioned it was a a period when car bombs were you know we were just absolutely gut checked you know worrying and watching and and um so we're headed back to our camp this is your second deployment uh, first deployment this is my first deployment um first so we had we uh we had we're heading back into camp and Sometimes, you know, we would leave camp four or five times in a day. You know, we had different places, different meetings with leaders there or some other mission, or we had to go to a different base and meet with somebody. It had, um, so it was it was a path and a place that we drove through a lot. And at the time, I was in the rear vehicle, and I was driving uh, an ASV. It's called an armored security vehicle. It's a, almost three times as heavy as a, as a Humvee, as a, as a combat-loaded Humvee. Um, but it has, you know, we could tow trucks and there was a lot of other stuff we could do too. It was, a, those, those were fun aside from the fires, which I can talk about another day. But, uh, um, so anyways, um, this car is, is going to cut us off because Iraqi drivers just drive. There is really, I don't know anyone that follows us, follows any kind of established anything. They want to drive on the, sometimes on the wrong side of the road. They, uh, you know, it, it, it just it just happens. And so I'm, I'm guessing that for most people there, it's kind of a guess and check thing. Can I really drive drive that way? OK, I'm going to follow this guy. He seems a little less insane. But that was kind of the, you know, the, the mentality of it. And, and we tried to give other cars a little more of a wide berth for that reason. Um, but then there were other times where we were more aggressive and we would pit cars and, and you know, knock them into the onto the shoulder because we wanted to maintain enough distance for ourselves. But anyway. So car pulls in front of us and I slam on the brakes. And again, this is this is this is 15 tons coming to a stop. And so it, it it's a it's a damn hard lurch. And we didn't come super close. We were at least 15 feet from the car, so we weren't quite that close. And 
Um, and so, and I looked at the car and it was a, I, I don't remember the kind, but it was, it was a, a smallish sedan. It had like seven people in it. If I had kept going, I would have killed at least one of them, maybe all of them, because the truck probably would have at some point with the inertia just gone over the car itself. And I look back on that and, and like came so close and there was no, there was no combat related danger to that. There was nothing that was going to happen to us. It was just the environment and the fear. And I don't remember what I told my team leader after that. I might've just taken my ass chewing and, and gone on with, with my day. Um, and he, there were other times where I did things. There was one night where we slid off the road into a, a bigger ditch um, and we didn't roll over. And later that night, he gave me an attaboy for, hey, you, you kept us alive. We didn't roll over. We didn't get hurt. You know, and, and um, some of those trucks, depending on the weight and stuff, you have to learn different ways to different ways to drive. Um, you know, some you're you really have to give it some gas to get going. Some it takes just a little bit. But each change, you know, you have to adjust for that. But I think about that. I think about how easy it would have been for me to hurt those people. And then I think about what would have been the actual fallout. You know, would 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 my leaders have stood up for me if 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 that happened? If they believed that it was truly that kind of a danger, which I don't think it was, but that doesn't mean that the danger can't be articulated in a report of some kind for somebody to read somewhere else that wasn't there. But, um. No, so like when when you got out or when you when when was like your real descent into like I am firmly against this and now I want to do something about it. Oh, that uh that came much later. Um I I was knee deep in trying to figure out my own pain and stuff um during the during the Afghan surge. Um I I didn't really keep, you know, and and Afghanistan, it, it, it wasn't that it, it didn't seem important to me, but I didn't know nearly enough. I didn't have the same connection and experience as I did with Iraq. So, you know, I kind of would check the news and like, well, this has happened in Iraq and that's happened in Iraq. And, um, you know, news headlines don't always show the actual actual reality, but you can you can see the descent over over time. But the thing that really brought me into it um, was Ferguson, that when when Michael Brown was killed, and the response of the police departments there, I saw this connecting between of military and police, and it terrified the shit out of me. And as as time went on from there, um, I continued to kind of you know looking at police brutality and looking um, at those at those military connections, and then Bernie came around. And and again, you know Bernie's you know some people have been Bernie Bros for a, a long time. Admittedly, Bernie bro, right here. Call, call it, put it in text. I don't care. I like the man. I don't. I don't follow him as a god, but uh, not that he wouldn't make a really cool statue. You know, receding hairline, nice little gold glasses, or maybe with his mitten thing. I don't know. But um, but the things that he said, the things that he brought around, talking about income inequality, and then not as much as domestic issues, but when he would bring up foreign issues and make those connections, I started thinking, I started thinking there's, there's more to this that I'm not 
taking time with, I haven't taken time with, and I, and I need to. And so during the 2016 race, you know, I was trying to absorb as much as I could. Um, I wouldn't, wouldn't say that I was anti-war at that point. Um, but at the end of 2017 is when we started the podcast. And it's since then that has been my, my real education in the U.S. military, in our foreign policy, you know, writ large, and in the domestic effect on people like us, on on the the um, the, the portion, the slice, the slice of the war that we carry with us. You know, you um, you're, you're someone that that did not actively you weren't in combat, but that doesn't mean you weren't part of the force. That doesn't mean that um, you you easily make those connections. I know the operations I worked on, seeing you know, in terms of you know the whole thing, you know that that. When Iraqis get killed and it's connected to the Americans, it, it's we did this. You know, we have we have abdicated that role. We have allowed Congress to abdicate that role to reign in the military, to reign in the executive branch in those times. Um, but you know, like I said, the, the the slice of war that you have is real. And since I have we've started the podcast. There's so many other topics that I follow now, things to look for in terms of the military. I don't read normal news very much anymore. I mean, I do. I do, you know, refer research on topics and things. But um, I'm so much more skeptical. I kind of wish I could tattoo skeptical right here and just make people read it when I meet them. Um, and and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that that skepticism. But, it, you know, at first I, I'd wondered, like, it, did it have its own, you know, where did, where did this really originate? And I did have a very deliberate path, you know, between Osama bin Laden getting killed, the, the Afghan surge, Ferguson. Um, and and, it, and it's, it's, it's about the inhumanity, you know, it's, it's that not even for domestic stuff is that most Americans seem like they hate other Americans, you know, unless they're so similar to them, to explain to somebody that you believe that free speech means protecting speech that you yourself hate, not very many people believe that. You know, they believe that their speech is okay and maybe some speech like them, but they don't look at the opposite side of it. And that's what people need to be able to do with our military. You need to be able to really look at if there were columns of Humvees and tanks rolling down your roads, if there were drones overhead that made your children terrified, what would you do? Would you sit there and take it or would you fight back? And we have to, we have to get that across to more people, you know, that, that the, the people have to be willing to think of the opposite situation. If something is good for you, it may invariably be bad for somebody else, but we don't take that. I, you know, and I want to, I want to be a completionist in that way. I want to be somebody that if I learn a subject, I try to learn pieces and parts of all of it. Um, you know, like right now, I, I consider myself a bit of a budding, a budding socialist. And so I'm trying to find texts and things that can explain different aspects of it to me and, and to look at it from different ways, which means learning stuff takes a lot longer these days. But I learn a lot more comprehensively. I can understand things in a, in a bigger picture. Um, hope I answered sure. your question. I feel the same way. <laughs> Um, no, it's 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 so frustrating, right? Because I, like, when when you talk to people who are from these countries, 
you talk to people from Iraq, from Syria, from Yemen, which not a lot of Americans get the opportunity to do. No. Like, you see, we have fucked up an entire region for generations. Mm -hmm. And like, like talking to millennials from Syria, like my brother is in Turkey right now. He's living there. He's in Istanbul. Hmm. And like, you know, he's meeting all these amazing people that are from, you know, a lot of people from the Middle East, like, on their way to different places like it's very it's it's a it's always been like that cultural like melting pot because Mm -hmm. turkey's the gateway to europe sure so it's always been like a really cool pass-through place and you know i talked to him about you know him being an american there and like what it's like and then when you talk to folks from these areas and how just like you said, like Arabic culture is so much about being welcoming and, mm-hmm. and like being good host, and, like caring about your guests and like not caring about like, like even little things like, you know, he, he this girl like that he's been hanging out with is like bringing over cookies. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry, I took some of your cookies. And she was like, what do you mean my cookies? Like I brought them over for you, you know, and like that, like just that weird concept of privatization of like everything that we're so focused on America and are so like, as you said, like we only care about free speech unless it offends our sensibilities yeah, and then we yeah. don't care or if it's not something we agree with. And like that kind of that kind of mentality is anathema to people who have been in serious trauma for their entire lives. And like so many Americans just don't understand how fucking privileged we are to be in this place where we've never had to worry about someone coming in and invading our country or or just like you know, sure, we've had random terrorist bombings occasionally, but like nothing in comparison to having an entire infrastructure, an entire society break down because of violence that was put on them. Like we have no fucking clue. And it's, I'm with you, dude. It's like, we have to, we have to be able to translate our experiences, which again, are just a small piece of the pie. But we have this experience that so many Americans don't have and don't want to have because they don't want to confront that you know how how damaging our military has been and it's like fuck we have to do something about that so with that i would love to ask like what do you feel like is your hope for the future like do you feel like do you feel like we could we have the opportunity because we've been in this pandemic for a year and some people just want us to like fuck off and go back to doing whatever we want but every i think a lot more people are realizing all the shit that that has led us to this point and these systemic problems that put us in, that made the situation so much worse than it should have been. You know, you look at like Vietnam that had, you know, they've, they had a a lower death rate than we did by far, a lower case rate by far. And that's per capita too. That's like not saying because of population that's per capita. You know, you look at, it's just insane. Like we, we, we handled this terribly because the people that make money didn't want us to do the things that we needed to do. And so like, for me, it's hard to see really a way out of that, that, that doesn't like, that isn't going to be serious upheaval, which I don't want that. I don't want people to go out there and take what they want by force, you know, because then we're just, we're not going to be any better. And, but I don't know, it's hard for me to see, a lot of ways, like what the future is when you have these people that have so much money and resources and they are concerned with centralizing that and maintaining. 
and growing it. And it's like, and so for me, it's hard to see like, how do we come back from that? But what, what do you feel like, what do you feel like are the ways that we can push on that? I, I would, I would definitely reiterate what I mentioned earlier about that if we can get, you know, and this is specific for service members, but it, for all people is that we have to learn to just value human life separate from the person we have, you know, that, that what, what was the thing that Bernie said that, that be, be willing to do something helpful or kind for someone that you've never met, you know, that you don't know, you don't understand their, their hardships that, we we end up looking at it from a, did I get the same thing that everybody else got? Did I get the benefit? Did I get the yeah. thing? Um, versus what way can and I And not getting anything back from it. Just yeah, being no, good no, no, no. And, and getting something um you know. But the the you know there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of bridges that I think need to be burned to create space for some real legitimate change. Um, one that I, I, I haven't thought about a lot, but I think it should, would just be a, an easy conclusion, a natural conclusion, is that um, military officers and that we're not allowed to work for military contractors, essentially. Um, and I don't mean like, you know, like like work, work at the at the base level. You know, somebody has to be security for somebody or they're working for KBR or whatever. I'm talking about the general pipeline. From being a four-star revolving door to being yeah. to being on the board of General Dynamics or Raytheon or or whoever it happens to be, um, I think that we have to find a way to separate um, ourselves. We have to separate from um, the idea of 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 profit in that way. Um, you know that we instead of having this, I don't want to call it extra money, but instead of having this money, we have Medicare for all. Instead of having this money, we have uh, free college. You know, um, I, that's kind of. I mean, it's 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 a good suggestion, but I, I don't. You know, it's not as as powerful for change. But it goes back to, you know, Americans have enough trouble hating Americans. For f- people that don't live in America, it's that much worse. You know, and the pushback from the system is just unbelievable. You know that the. Um, Carter, you know, when Carter, when uh, Jimmy Carter wrote the Carter Doctrine, talking about wanting, um, un- understanding that most of the world's oil was there, and that I think it was like the success of the Middle East is our success. Them be- having stable countries, good relations, good economic policies that protects us in addition to them, and then you see this yeah. slow drag over the 80s and 90s and then culminating with the the beginning of the Iraq war where that kept getting pushed. You know, Reagan doing stuff with Iran-Contra, the Gulf War um, invasion, the sanctions and the drone bombings and and Air uh, Air Force bombings uh, in Iraq. And then finally we arrived at at W and W said, hold my beer. You know, this is is what's going to happen. But I... Even if it's a bit flawed, I, I would applaud Carter on that kind of thing because it takes a lot of bravery, especially if you're going to say anything positive about certain countries that we're supposed to hate. Iran being the, the, usually the number one, but there's certainly other ones, you know, North Korea and Syria fit fit into that as well. Um, but wouldn't, shouldn't we say, you know, if we have the most powerful military in the world and we keep 
sending so many troops to the Middle East, why wouldn't the simple solution just to be to say what Carter said? that their success will be our success because we'll have access to oil and we won't have to send our troops there because there's no chance of them coming here to hurt us. They live in a good country. They don't live within, you know, um, being, uh, sorry, I'm dropping the word, but uh, being scared and being, you know, all the time, all their lives, you know, not knowing, you know, having to move between uh, refugee camps and, and, and shit. Um, but I think that that's where we need to be. I think we need to be able to say that whatever country they're, you know, if, if they're stable, that adds to our stability. Um, and that includes Russia and yeah. China. Just look at the math. Yeah, yeah. yeah and look then, at the math. Like extremism doesn't flourish in good countries. It doesn't flourish nope. in places where people feel safe. They feel happy. They feel secure. They feel like a sense of motivation and a, and a sense of the ability to move ahead and like get what they want out of life. Like, because that's what extremism preys on. It mm -hmm. preys on those people that feel disadvantaged. They feel let down. They see no path forward. And some person, usually a guy, an older guy, comes in with money and says, hey, like, let me give you those things that you're lacking in your immediate life. And let me tell you who's to blame for all your problems. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's the same everywhere. And it makes me sad that, like, I see us devolving into that as more people are frustrated and especially as us, like as cisgendered straight white dudes, there's a lot of people who are in our group that are feeling that same way. They feel like they're somehow like everyone else's gain is their loss. And it's like, no, like there's like, I just yeah. want us to get rid of that fear of lack of that fear of like, oh my God, if I don't have something, then I, then, you know, if I give it to this guy, then I'm not going to have it. And it's like, fuck you. Like, that's not where we live. Yeah. Yeah. Like we could we could do so much more, especially because of our place in the world as Americans, but also just the fact that like if we wanted to live up to our values of freedom and democracy and they've, those words have been twisted so much. But if we wanted to live up to those to the living of the pursuit of happiness, it means giving people the things that they need to survive and then giving them the ability to move forward. Yeah. And it's like, fuck you. Like I'm, ah, I'm just so tired of people that don't get that. It's, it's like, we're, we are making it worse because we're denying it to ourselves because like you said, we hate ourselves. And like that sense of violence, that desensitization to violence that we have in America makes me really sad. But I, I do hope like if we, we have these points to make these monumental shifts and people can, they have to make a decision. Like, are you on the side of humanity and of living and life? Or are, are you on the side of continuing this path of letting people accumulate more in this weird race that doesn't mean shit after you die? Or, you know, leaving something like leaving a fucking planet for us to live on. And yeah, we have to, we have to do that. No, um, being, being an American to me seems to come with an automatic expectation of a zero sum game. And, um, you know, I think, I think that's why, what's why one of the problems that the left has is that there's the groups that really need the most help are not the ones that we reach out to, you know, we, we do little things, small things, but it's not on, on that big scale. It's kind of what, 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 uh, Vince Emanuele talked about a little bit when he was here. Um, but I, I think I think that one of the biggest things we need to do, and the recent shootings um, bring it out, is that we have to 
downgrade, ignore, or maybe even eliminate the idea of the heavy weight of personal responsibility. You know, that we, yes. we as, as a, he said, as a, as a, a, made a white male nation, as a Christian majority nation, um, we absolutely believe in that swift hammer of justice. And we have to understand that there, there are better patterns to follow. I'm not saying people shouldn't be charged with crimes if they do things wrong and hurt people. And, and, uh, but it, it, um, we have to be willing to look at the whole picture. You know, if I was only willing to accept the experiences that I had in Iraq as the hardened ones when I talked to people, which very much kind of was how I was when I got out in 2008, I felt I felt a bit alienated unless there were other veterans around. And, and you know, that's that's a that's a that's a self-inflicted wound. That's that's me not not uh, recognizing what uh, what needs to happen there. Um well, but you didn't have any. You didn't have any sense of preparation for that. Like we're not prepared no, no, when we no, get no. out to feel that way. <laughs> like they don't prepare no. us to feel like to understand what that feeling is when we get out and we feel that isolation and that like what? The, why do all these people not give a fuck about yeah. the shit that I like? They like spent my life doing and like gave significant parts of myself to. Um, but yeah, like it's it's hard. We have to we have to be willing to accept that, and I think I love that. Like what we said with Danny at the end there, it's like we have to be willing to take a look at ourselves and like our own experiences, and you know, understand them in the broader context of this world that we're living, and you know, not try to elevate ourselves because we have personal experience. Like fuck, like that doesn't matter as much. Like yes, personal experience matters, but like it it doesn't matter when you're trying to build. The coalition of ideas when so you're yeah. trying to build that i that sense of like what do we want to move forward like do we care about life or do we not and if if that's the case then we need to like be able to step our own personal ego out of it and you know understand what the broader community needs um I think I think it, it I, I don't speak about it much partly because the the it the idea of it really bothers me but the 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 meat grinder that we as a society are willing to shove our children into because make no mistake you know you mentioned about my inexperience I was a kid I was 17 18 years old I I didn't know much of anything about the world outside of my little hometown and you know the powers that be were willing to shove people like you and me into that machine in a ostensible effort for defense. That's why we're doing that. And, and it would be different if we lived in a period where, you know, if it was in, if it was in world war two, it's like, okay, there's some really awful things happening and I wish the war didn't exist, but this is one of those things that we have to, because we're, we're so terrified of what the other side of the world might look like. Um, but most of the time, they're avoidable. Most of the time, people, you know, it, it, it's, it's, we're just, we're willing. We, we, we want to, I don't think we want to be afraid, but I think we cling to it. You know, some of, some of it, human survival, mm -hmm. some of it is back to zero sum again. I don't care. Fuck you. I don't, I don't care about you. I care about me. You know that, oh, that shooting happened in Colorado. I've never been to Colorado. Why do I give a fuck? I don't need to change my gun laws because that happened however that far away um 
but we have to and it's so stupid it's like we're all humans and these things happen everywhere because we're humans but but um but no that there's there's a there's a very dense and powerful moral bankruptcy from taking you know these these new lives you know these kids and saying that their deaths their maimings their uh, receipt of diseases in in numerous kinds you know ptsd tbis um we're saying it's worth it we're saying that pain that suffering that's all that stuff is acceptable to us and until our military can do that until the dod like the va recognizes moral injury as real and something that soldiers carry until we're willing to say publicly that we're not going to send troops unless they actually have a threat against our homeland, something that is concrete and tangible. And I, has I, been debated in public? Yeah, in exactly. The, it's, it's like actually, it's actually, yeah, and, and, you know, in going back for a second to the, to the Carter Doctrine, you know, there was a, a ton of pushback. You know, Jimmy Carter, he was, he was a, a, I, I suppose, considered a little bit naive, but he was a much more human president. He was somebody that really yeah. looked that way. And, um, and it's like we've been talking about, especially with environmental stuff, we have one world. When this thing is done, when we have destroyed it, and the military does a really great job every fucking day of destroying the world, even faster than it already is, um, we're just sealing we're sealing our own fate, and we're now we're just sometimes I feel like we're just clicking down the clock right now, and it's like no, I can I can find happiness in my little circle of life, but I see this thing coming from way off, and it's coming, and I'm scared, and I don't know, you know, and and. You know, the, the, the real crises, the real things, you know, may not even develop until you and I are, are older, you know, considerably older. You know, mm. we, the, the country that we're going to see in our 70s and 80s is going to be so different. And, and um, especially with, with the way the <laughs> environment is changing, you know, like right now, our. Uh... Sorry, um, our fucking southern border is closed right now. How can you do that to people? We're the ones that fucked up Central America. We're the ones that, that brought all that violence to bear there. And yet we're willing to just lock the door. Cool. Come back in three months. Maybe the politics will be different and we can let some people in. As opposed to we are somewhat partially or completely responsible for why they're here. Can we please do something about it? Um, but no, we're going to deploy. Right. We're going to deploy more troops to stand there with binoculars and say, oh, somebody's coming over there. For what, you know, it, 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 um, and I hope, I hope that people think about that in terms of allowing their kids to become part of the military, that not only may your kid not come back as the person that you remember or a person that is, even if they're different, you know, still fully formed, but doesn't have to deal with, um, PTSD, um, you now also have to consider what did that kid do? on their deployments you know what were they a part of what will they you know how did that actually impact anything you know if we told people that we're we're buying ourselves a a country alarm system that it says protects us but doesn't protect us and doesn't even really uh acknowledge the lack of certain threats and the feasibility of real ones um you know we want to believe in the myth we want to follow the myth all the way down the rabbit hole 
you know, America, American exceptionalism, rah, rah, we're number one, everybody else sucks. We can't do it. We can't do it. We can't be Which is, it's, that selfish. Yeah. yeah. No. Well, especially now, like the the world is too connected to not see how other people live. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. It's yeah. unfortunate because in America, like we we're so sequestered because we tend to make a lot of the media and mm-hmm. especially the media that we see. So our perception of what is going on in other countries is always filtered by that. Mm-hmm. Like we're never getting the, unless you talk to people who are from there, you're not getting the real story. And yeah. I just, I want more people to do that. Like I want more people to listen, to stop talking and just listen to each other and, you know, be willing to accept things that maybe seem a little weird and maybe seem kind of funky, but like, I promise you, like the more that we learn and the more that we grow as humans, the better off we will be. And I, that's my only hope for humanity is that we we don't have a lot of choices. We either, we come together as a human race and we start to figure out how to actually make this planet livable or we keep going down this stupid, selfish, short-sighted mentality of fuck you, I've got mine, you know, and which only leads to worse outcomes for everybody. And, and instead of like trying to go after them and be like, Oh, I want to be one of those people that makes it like, why, why aspire to that? Aspire to be that person yeah. who helps that person who, you know, it doesn't even have to be in a big way. Like I think a lot of our generation and Gen Z, especially like you care so much about, you know, being like having an impact and like being authentic. Well, you talked about that. Danny talked about that. That's something that I think that we all really care about because we saw those images of stuff and we were like, what is this? Like, okay, that's one way, but like, I don't know if that necessarily fits me. And I think the Gen Z kids are even more in tune with that of like, fuck you. Like I've got my identity and like, or I'm figuring out who that is. And like, I'm not going to apologize for it. And I love that. I think that's only going to help us. But then we have to take that next step of let's expand that. Like not you get to be yourself, but so does literally everybody else. And if we want to believe in freedom, not the freedom from, you know, restraints to do whatever you want, but actual freedom of allowing people to express themselves and be who they want to be and live their lives, then the current system that we have isn't, doesn't work. And like, I, I hope that we'll get to that point that we can, we can start to really build systems to push back against these people who want to continue to centralize and just say no. Um, awesome. Well, thanks so much, dude. I really appreciate you talking with us and I appreciate everything. And I'm so glad that we get to be on this podcast together. It's been so great. <laughs> I, uh, b- before we, we, we didn't get that shit, we didn't get to ask any questions, but oh, sorry. Um, uh, I wanted to ask a question about like why you started, like what made you reach out to Dan and like uh, that you didn't really, you didn't even um, like know him. We- we can keep going for a little bit if you've got time, man. I, I, I've got nowhere to be. So. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to know. Okay. Um, uh, before I before I mention that, I wanna I wanted to say a few names that I've never said on the podcast before that I need to I, I need to remember to discuss them more often. But um, thinking of um, Jesse Berger, who died on my first tour, he was the sole casualty that we had on our tour amongst a, a very combat heavy time um 
So that, that you know, I, I, I hate saying I'm grateful we only lost one guy because I'm not. I, I uh, But that was that um, that was our one casualty. And, and, you know, there was something in my mind that was kind of like, man, we've really been so lucky. And I was just kind of waiting for the non-lucky day. You know, I was waiting for that that at some point the luck the luck is going to run out and i don't particularly believe in luck but you know the the possibilities of things um aaron ward who was a replacement soldier actually in a different platoon on my second tour i never i never got the chance to meet him but a brand new soldier got shot by a sniper um and uh jesse actually died from friendly fire it was actually determined after a long investigation that Polish soldiers that were at the checkpoint he was working at fired in his direction and, and shot him. And, um, and the last, the last one I want to mention, or the last ones I want to mention are guys that have passed since I've been out. Uh, one is Eric Baker. He was a driver in my team when I was a, a younger, when I was a, a junior enlisted soldier. And he was he was a, a great teammate to have, and he ended up joining the Navy after he left the Army, and then he developed a rare form of cancer and ended up dying. And without a doubt, some of it is, is very much connected to his service. But um, And then uh, Joe Early and um, Zach Richmond have uh, both uh, died by suicide. Um, and that's and that's one thing that you know with our with the way that social media is connected these days and using the internet that we know or at least can pretty probably guess how those things came out you know and that means that as i get older as we all get older that we're going to have to continue to watch that and it's very it's very hard to watch but that is the reality and i don't think enough people um, realize that, you know, that, you know, maybe in Vietnam, when you went back home and you didn't, you know, didn't hear about this other buddy that you knew somewhere else every day, it made it, made it easier to separate those things. But these days, like you mentioned with the, you know, to the internet and the, and social media and trying to learn more, you know, trying to, to branch out that we're able to know those things and not just the damage it does to our former comrades, but the damage that it does in places like Iraq. I want to go back to Iraq. I want to go back and meet the people and spend time with them and talk with them about my experiences and their experiences. I, I really want that to happen. But um, anyways, can you uh, repeat your question for me? Oh, I feel Dan, so jealous Danny. that the Vietnam guys get to do that. Yeah, no, it, it, that, that little bit of ignorance is a, is a nice space. And, you know, I know there's going to be times in the future I'm like, eh, next six months, I'm not doing social media. I just don't want to see it. I don't want to. I'm just going to take a break. But so I had figured out that I wanted to do a podcast, but I wasn't sure I, I wanted to do it with somebody else. I had seen and heard, you know, many solo podcasters who do a really great job. Tom Secker is one of those people. He does a, an amazing job, but I wanted to have somebody that had similar but very different experiences and I wanted someone that could you know add to my brain bucket in that way and so I had I had gotten onto reading a little bit of truth dig and anywar.com and a couple of places and I kept seeing this name 
Danny Sherson, Danny Sherson. And I'm like, this is, it's, you know, it's brilliant stuff. And, and, um, but it really, it really pushes that skepticism button that, that didn't for me. And I was like, you know, maybe he would be somebody good that could, you know, we could kind of balance each other out. And granted, I didn't know the guy yet. I don't think I had, I had seen any interviews of, of his either. So I sent him a, uh, I put a little re- reply to a tweet of his on, on Twitter and asked him for his email. And he gave it to me and we started emailing. And we, a couple of days later, we talked on the phone and we had, you know, six or seven weeks of, of, email discussions and things, you know, what did we want to cover? What did we want to focus on? But the podcast became something entirely different than either of us, I think, expected it would. Um, but, and, and not in a bad way. I think it was, it's very much in a, in a good way. Um, but it was one of those experiences that we just had to open the, you know, open the airplane door and jump, um, and, and see what happened. And, um, you know, at first it, it kind of felt like it was, you know, we were having odd conversations between each other and not sharing this with people. But then I started hearing from people, you know, I, I still remember, uh, Will Arends, who is the, he was the, one of the first patrons that we've ever had on, on Patreon. And he's been a patron ever since we started. And he, uh, Will and I talked about his son and about concerns of him wanting to go into the service and what that looked like and what it could potentially do to him. And, you know, not wanting to, you know, when dealing with teenagers, you know, we're, we're, we're very contrary. We're sometimes very stubborn. So coming at it head on, I don't want you to join the military can sometimes have an opposite effect. Um, but mm-hmm. it reminded me that there are people searching for that same truth that I am. You know, they didn't have the same experiences as me, as you, but they understand the moral question and they don't like the answer that we're giving, you know, that they, they want to latch on to that better part of America, or at least just, just expand their knowledge. You know, I, I, we, we talk about being anti-war and all three of us are, you know, anti-war people, but the stuff we talk about is for everybody. You know, there may be people that, that listen to us and like, well, I certainly don't agree with them on the anti-war stuff, but they make a lot of good points about what we're doing in Yemen or what's happening with the all volunteer force or, whatever it happens to be is that, you know, I don't, I don't want to discount people because they don't agree with me so specifically that we, we, we need to call them out. And I think we do need to have our, you know, our boundaries that we defend, but um, we need to be accepting. And if, if, if I hadn't been willing to do that, you know, I, 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 I wanted to, uh, to get to that higher level. And that's, that's why I emailed Danny. That's why I went to the vet spar thing with with you, which uh, it's still very weird to me that that's the only time we've seen each other in real life. But we have seen each other in real <laughs> life. Danny could still be a computer <laughs> animation, but you're a real person. I seen you ass. So, um, yeah. But uh, but no, and, and I I love I love the community of people that listen. I love the questions that they send in or the comments that they have, and I like criticism. I like I like knowing you know hey you were kind of might have been kind of wrong about this. There's times where because of my memory or trying to keep a thought in my head that I I fudge a little bit of history, and then I uh, somebody mentions it and like oh you're right you're right I was totally wrong on the year or the whatever it happened to be, um, but. Uh, but no, I'm I'm I am I am immensely glad that I took that jump to contact Danny, to to go to the vet spar thing with you, to ask you to join the podcast too, and and you know it, it's become something much bigger than I thought it would be. Um, 
but it, it it's hard. It's a very, you know, we, we, we don't make easy things to listen to. This episode, this what we're talking about here today, isn't easy to watch if you happen to be watching it or, or to listen to at all. And I, I get why people get turned off from it, especially if there's someone that has bought into the American notion of exceptionalism so hard. There's a there's a, a pride. There's a pride bite that comes in that. And, and I wish people could see past it. Um, but, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, uh, <laughs> down and dirty of how uh, how we began the podcast. Well, thank you so much, dude. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I think this is going to be a really fun series that we're doing. I'm really glad that um, I, I like I I don't know. I As much as I get upset about personal experience because I feel like it can be too narrow, it is the thing that grabs you, right? It is it the is. thing that gets you to relate and gets you to think like, oh, crap, like what would I feel like if I was in that position? You know, it gets you to expand your mind more, which is what we're trying to do. Right. We just want people to think about things in a broader context than what is given to them. And I'm so glad that you like, thank you for letting me on the podcast. It's been such a great experience for me to be a part of this and to like help. It's helped my own mental health. Absolutely. To like be a part of this and have a voice and to feel like, like, even if I am like as minuscule as, you know, I feel like my part is, I feel like uh, it's been like inordinately helpful and i hope that it's been the same for you and danny it has it has i i uh um my 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 friend pool when i began the podcast was pretty pretty shallow and since that time has come around you know that there's there's quite a few people you know some that i keep in touch with with great regularity um about all, all kinds of different things and um my friend uh my friend duncan uh, Kobrick that I met, he lives in, uh, upstate New York and his, uh, his unit was, was part of the long road home series. And, you know, he, he, uh, he and I discussed that. I went to his, to his house and, uh, we talked about that and went through the episodes and everything and a very surreal and fucked up thing to see your story, but it's not your story. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I am, I am infinitely grateful and, welcoming of all the people I've met and especially especially you and and Danny um it does it makes the world seem bigger it doesn't make it seem as small especially when you have people that say hey we see this too we see the militarism we see the deaths we see the tarnishing of our country you know that get into that patriotic descent that Danny talks about in his book that Sometimes it is the most patriotic thing because it is the most opposite thing for everybody else in the room, you know, and maybe you need to be that that Jack Lemmon character in 12 Angry Men that you stand your ground and you get people to see truth and little bit by little bit. Hopefully you can keep doing it. So. Right. And and hopefully that leads us to finding ways like we, we start with the individual connection to work towards the systemic change. Yep. And that requires a lot and it requires a lot of thinking, but I, I'm i so grateful that we get to do this and thanks so much for doing this. Me too, man, me too. Thank you for the for the great questions and discussion. I, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it and I think, uh, I think, I think the listeners will, uh, will too. 
We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. Ah.